to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Mark, chapter 9, verse 25, as we follow along with today's lesson. So Jesus is commanding the Spirit to leave and don't enter again. There are a lot of people that come to the Lord only for the perks, only for the benefits, but not really to have their life controlled by and filled with the Spirit of God. All they want is help. I have a problem. I want a solution. I have a difficulty. I want an answer. I don't want to surrender my life. I don't want my life to be filled with the Lord. I just want help from this problem. Dangerous place to be. When something goes out, you can't leave the void. You've got to fill it or something else even worse will come in. So here the commandment to leave and never to enter again. And the Spirit cried and Tore him sore. Probably a great convulsion and a and and the mute he cried out. And he was then lying there as though he was dead. It was just left him, the little boy, limp, lying there as though he were dead. In fact, many of the people said, Oh, he died. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he was coming to the house, his disciples asked him privately, how come we couldn't do that? And Jesus said unto them, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. They were unable. Notice here the fact that this particular demon that was possessing this boy evidently was a powerful demon and they are ranked in various degrees of power and authority, principalities, powers and, and all uh, rankings. They had known what it was to cast out demons But here was one that resisted all of their endeavors of exorcism. And so when they saw Jesus delivering the boy, they they said, Lord, how come we couldn't do this? Notice how that when the boy was being brought to Jesus, that the demon threw him on the ground, and, and there went through a little demonstration right there as the boy was wallowing and foaming. And probably... 
The same kind of thing happened when they brought the boy to the disciples. That the demon manifested itself. And it is possible that the disciples were so overawed by the power of the demon to control that little boy that they lost sight of the power of Jesus to deliver him. I think that many times we get into situations where we become so awed by the problem, by the situation, that we lose sight of the power of God that is so much greater. We shouldn't be awed by the powers of darkness. We shouldn't be alarmed or fearful or all. Uh, And so the disciples, powerless in this state, or in this particular case, but Jesus said, this kind takes prayer and fasting. And they departed from there and passed through Galilee And he would not that any man should know it. He was trying to just sort of pass through secretly. Um, They're getting ready to go on down to Jerusalem where he is to be crucified. He has been uh, talking to them now and revealing to them the fact that the crucifixion is coming. And so he is seeking now just to spend time, quality time with the disciples because he is soon going to be leaving all of the things into their care. And imagine how he must feel right now. These are the fellows that I'm going to give the keys to the kingdom. I'm going to turn the work and here they're they're failing right here already. You know, they they failed this this test with this demon. And, And... They are the ones, and so he's no doubt feeling an urgency to really get them qualified and built up. So he was trying to pass through rather privately, for he taught his disciples, and this was his purpose, quality time with them to teach them. He taught them that the Son of Man was to be delivered into the hands of men And they would kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise the third day. Again, talking about this. Now, remember on the mount, as he was coming down with Peter and James and John, uh, he was talking about, uh, don't tell anybody until I'm risen. And they said, what does he mean by that? You know, what's he talking about, rising from the dead? And so again, now he's talking to them about his death and resurrection. But they understood not that saying, but they were afraid to ask him. Peter got in trouble earlier. Uh, He rebuked the Lord for talking about his death and all, and and Jesus rebuked him. And so they're they're afraid to, to ask the Lord to explain what he's talking about. They still do not understand. And when they came to Capernaum, sort of his headquarters in the Galilee, and being in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about among yourselves in the way? While they were coming down, there there was this big argument. 
coming back from Caesarea. It's probably, oh, 50, 60 miles. And so the disciples were in this argument. So when they came in the house, they said, what are you guys arguing about? But they held their peace. For in the way they were arguing among themselves of who would be the greatest. Now imagine, here's Jesus <laughs> talking about, I'm going to go and die. I'm going to rise again. And, and they don't understand it. So they're arguing. Now, who's going to be the greatest? I'm going to be the greatest. Oh, not you, man. Me. You know. He, he, look at the way he looks at me. He's trusting me. Doesn't really trust you guys. He's, you know, and they're arguing about this. Still thinking that he's going to set up his kingdom immediately. They just did not understand. No wonder he said to the to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, oh, foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have said. And so he sat down and he called the 12. And he said, if any of you desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and the servant of all. And he took a child And he set the child in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them. So he took a little child, took him up in his arms. And he said, whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him that sent me. So the ministry to a child. So important. You know, we think, oh, I want to minister to the vast multitudes. Jesus said, no, take a child. Minister to the child. And and in receiving a little child in my name, you're receiving me. And in receiving me, you're receiving the Father. They were looking for greatness for themselves. And Jesus said, the path to greatness is the path of service. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then become the servant of all. That night in which he was betrayed, when he took the towel and he went around and washed their feet, he said, do you see what I have done? They said, oh yeah, Lord, we see. And he said, you call me Lord and Master, and that's correct, I am. But if I being your Lord and Master wash your feet, then you ought to wash one another's feet. The place of the service, serving one another. You want to be great in the kingdom. Be the servant. And John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in your name, and he didn't follow us, and so we forbid him because he didn't follow us. John's trying to start a denomination. (laughs) Isn't that sad? He didn't follow us. I suppose he was expecting Jesus to say, good boy, John. You know, they, they, they're, they're still vying for greatness in the kingdom, you know. Lord, we forbade him, you know. And Jesus said, forbid him not. For there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. Now notice, people were discovering the power of the name of Jesus. Here is a man. Though he wasn't following with the disciples, yet he was casting out demons in the name of Jesus, discovering the power of the name. 
And no man which shall do a miracle in my name can really speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. For whosoever shall give to you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to the Messiah, verily I say unto you, he will not lose his reward. So, Again, the idea of service, giving just as much as a cup of water in the name of the Lord. Whosoever shall offend one of these little ones. Now the child is still here. He's probably still holding the child on his lap. It's a, I, I love the way children were attracted to Jesus. And he was holding this little child on his lap. And he said, whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me. Oh, how pure and how beautiful is the faith of a child. How I, how I love to hear their prayers. How I love to talk to them about Jesus and about God. That beautiful simplicity of faith that they possess. But can you imagine a person's how diabolical the mind of a person must be who would seek to destroy the faith of a child in Jesus? To deliberately try to destroy the faith of a child? Jesus said, Better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he was cast into the sea. Bit of mafia in Jesus. Because those millstones must weigh 500 pounds or more. I mean, if you try and destroy a faith of a child, know this. You're going to be facing an angry Lord. And if your hand offend thee, cut it off. Now, this is such a difficult, difficult passage. But we have to understand that Jesus is not speaking literally, but he is speaking figuratively. He is saying that the most important thing in your whole life, nothing exceeds in importance than you're entering the kingdom of heaven. That's the most important thing in your whole life. It's more important than your hand, more important than your eye, more important than anything in all the world. And so he uses a, a very strong kind of shocking words here. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Better for you to enter into eternal life maimed than having two hands and going into hell or Gehenna. And this is not the Hades here, but it is the Greek word Gehenna. Now, Gehenna was related to the valley of Hinnom, the valley that runs on the uh, southern side of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, it is the valley in which uh, King Ahaz uh, built idols unto the god Molech. And they had the fires, the bonfires, and the people would take their unwanted babies and throw them in the bonfires as sacrifices to Molech. 
they didn't have abortive procedures at those times, and so they'd take the live babies and throw them in to the fires to Molech. Today, we are more refined. We sacrifice the babies to Molech while they're still in the womb. Molech, the god of pleasure. Later, Manasseh came along, even more wicked than Ahaz, and continued this horrible, horrible practice there in the valley of Hinnom. So that when Josiah came to the throne and he instituted the reformation, spiritual reformations, he made the valley of Hinnom the garbage dump for the city. It was a prof- he wanted to make it a profane place. They had worshipped the false gods, so he wanted to profane it, and so he made it the garbage dump of the city. And all of the garbage of the city was cast into the valley of Hinnom. And there was the constant burning of the garbage, constant smoke coming from the valley of Hinnom as the garbage was burned. The rotting carcass of the animals and so forth were filled with worms and so forth so that it was a very graphic thing. And Jesus uses it to describe the place of punishment for those who have rejected God's love and God's invitation to salvation through Jesus Christ. So having two hands go into Gehenna, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Revelation 14 tells us the smoke of their torment ascendeth forever and ever. And if your foot offend you, cut it off. Better for you to enter into lame into life than having two feet be cast into Gehenna where the fire that never shall be quenched, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. Better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes be cast into Gehenna fire where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. When we were back in Toledo, Ohio years ago, I was still in college And this one young fellow that we met asked us if we would like to run traps with him. To make money, he would trap muskrats in the ponds that are so abounding around Toledo. And uh, he would catch the muskrats and, of course, skin them, put them on boards, tack them on boards, and then sell the furs. So we said, sure, we'd like to run traps with you. So he picked us up at 6 o'clock, and we went out to the ponds, started running traps. We came to the first trap, and he was in the bushes ahead of us, making his way down to the pond, and we heard him, when he saw the trap, say, oh, no. And so we said, what's wrong? And he said, look, and here in the trap was the paw of a muskrat. He said, if you catch them by the paw, they'll turn around and chew off their foot and leave it in the trap. 
and get away. Said they'll do the same thing. You catch them by the tail. They'll chew off their tail, leave it, and you miss him. And you know, it's sort of thing. Ugh, you know, <laughs> chewing off your own foot. But really, the muskrat isn't too dumb. He figures better to have three paws and still be swimming in the pool than having four paws and be tacked on a board. (laughs) And so Jesus is, is more or less saying that. If there is something in your life that is holding you back from full commitment to God, get rid of it. It may be painful. It may be a severe measure. But the most important thing is that we enter into the kingdom of heaven. And we've got to get rid of anything that keeps us back from entering into the kingdom of heaven. Now, throughout church history, there have been those who have been guilty of mutilating their bodies in order to hopefully overcome certain problems. Origen had a tremendous problem with lust. And so he castrated himself. But then he later discovered that it didn't solve the problem. He still lusted. So... It's not a literal thing. It's spiritual. But it is important. And Jesus is stressing how important it is that we enter the kingdom of heaven, that we escape Gehenna. For everyone shall be salted with fire. Now, in the Old Testament sacrifices, those that were to be burned, the sacrifices were to be salted before they were offered. And the salt was used as a purifying agent. Without refrigeration, when meat was butchered, it would soon begin to rot. And so to retard the spoilage, they would salt down the meat heavily. The salt killed the surface bacteria and thus preserved the meat. And so in this first one, salt is being looked at as a preservative, even as fire is a purifier, burning out the dross. And so Jesus talking about the severe measures that need to sometimes be taken and how that We need that purifying fire of God in our lives to burn out the dross from our lives. Everyone shall be salted with fire. That is the purifying of the fire. Uh, And Peter said, Beloved, count it not strange concerning the fiery trials which are to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. He talks about uh, the trials of your faith being more precious than gold that perishes when it is tried with the fire. So the the purpose of the, the fire was to 
burn out the dross from the gold, to leave that which was pure. And thus God's fiery trials and all that he sometimes puts us through to get rid of the dross, to get rid of the impurities in our life. Every sacrifice will be salted with salt. That's the Old Testament law. Now he says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltness, wherewith will you season it? Now, there's nothing worse than oats without salt. I mean, it is so flat and bland, it's hard to eat. Uh, I grew up on oats. You know, thank God when I was a kid, but they did have Wheaties and cornflakes, but um, <laughs> man, you look at this, the junk today that we're feeding our kids. What a tragedy. You know, I feel sorry for kids today. These quick box sugared cereals. I grew up on whole wheat, oats, whole grains. But every once in a while, my mom would forget to put the salt in the boiling water when she made the oats. And they'd just be so flat, and you'd pour in all the honey, and you still couldn't get rid of just that flat taste. Potatoes without salt, just sort of flat and bland. So the salt has lost its saltness. You don't use it for seasoning. So he said, have salt within yourselves and have peace one with the other. So this is sort of a, a, a takeoff from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, ye are the salt of the earth if the salt has lost its savor or saltiness. Wherewith will it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under the foot of man. The Christian is to be a purifying influence in the world, like salt, used as a purifier, preventing rottenness, but also the Christian should be bringing spice and flavor to life. You know, the Christian life is not a dull, bland kind of a thing. It's a glorious, exciting thing, and we should be bringing flavor to men. I've often said, and I'm too late this year, I know, unless you take a vacation and go back and see the changing leaves in New England, I've often said, be sure to accept Christ before you go on vacation. You'll be amazed at how much more beautiful things are when you see them through the eyes of Christ. In touch with the Creator, in fellowship with the Creator, the heavens are a deeper blue. The earth is a deeper green. Something glows in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. Unless you have Christ in your heart, you've never seen the beauty, the true beauty of creation. The Christian life brings zest. It brings flavor to everything. I'm so glad I belong to Jesus. Chapter 10, 
Jesus seems to be coming directly from the Mount of Transfiguration where Moses and Elijah appeared to him and they talked to him about his death in Jerusalem. As he leaves the Mount of Transfiguration, he begins a journey through the length of the country. He is there at the uppermost part of the nation, at the area of Caesarea Philippi. But he journeys down through the upper Galilee, comes back to Capernaum, but just sort of stopping through. And thus he leaves Capernaum, and we catch up with ourselves here in the 10th chapter, and he arose from there, that is Capernaum, and he came unto the coast of Judea, or the borders of Judea, by the farther side of the Jordan. He isn't coming down through uh, Judea now, but is staying on the other side of the Jordan River, a little out of the reach of uh, the jurisdiction of uh, the uh, Pharisees and scribes there on the other side of the Jordan River. But the people came to him. And as he was accustomed, he taught them again. Always teaching of the grace and the glory of the Father. Always teaching men of the wonders of the Father. And it was just, just people there he's going to teach and share with them. So uh, the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? Tempting him. A lead question, a trick question. They really don't want an answer. They're not looking for answers. They're looking for arguments. There are questions that are honest questions, and there are questions that are dishonest questions because they appear as a question, but really there is no desire to receive an answer, only a desire to create an argument. This was one of those questions that they're trying to create an argument. They're trying to set Jesus against the teachings of the Mosaic law. For in the Mosaic law, if a man married a woman and he found some uncleanness in her, he could give her a writing of a bill of divorcement. Now, through the years, that phrase, find some uncleanness in her, they developed two sharply distinct interpretations of what that meant. There were those who interpreted that in a very restrictive sense. That is, she was guilty of adultery. Then he could write her a bill of divorcement. But there was another rabbinic school that took a very liberal kind of an interpretation, 
find some uncleanness in her. One rabbi said, if you just find someone else who is prettier and that you like more. You know, and thus, as Jesus said, they disallowed the law by their traditions. So there was, though, a divided opinion even among the rabbis as to what constituted finding an uncleanness in this writing of the bill of divorcement. But yet there was definitely the provision for the bill of divorcement under the Mosaic law, undeniably. So they knew that Jesus took a very strict view towards marriage. And they were trying to put him at odds with the law of Moses because everybody recognized that the law of Moses was the law of God, that Moses was inspired by God and that God gave to Moses the law. Thus, if Jesus is saying something contrary to the Mosaic law, then how can he claim to be from God? And that was the whole issue behind the question is to put him at odds with the Mosaic law. So he answered and said unto them, What did Moses command you? He recognized that they were trying to get him uh, in conflict with Moses' commandments. And they said, Moses allowed us to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. That's what Moses said. You could write her a bill of divorcement, put her away. And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. Recognizing that man could not come to God's divine ideal because of the hardness of his heart, God made allowance under the Mosaic law for the hardness of the heart. That wasn't God's intention. That wasn't God's purpose. That isn't God's best. And so Jesus goes back before the Mosaic law. In the beginning, when God created man, and created the woman and brought her to Adam. In the beginning, God's intent, God's purpose, God's desire, that in the beginning and from the beginning, he made them male and female, and for this cause, a man shall leave his mother and father and shall cleave unto his wife, and they too become one flesh. The marriage union is the most intimate union that man can experience on the human level, where the two become one flesh. And it is extremely beautiful, and it is fulfilled within the child that is born from the union. As you look at that beautiful little child, you can't say that's mine. You have to say that's ours. It's one. The two of you have become one in that child because it has taken 
23 chromosomes from the mother and 23 from the father. It's ours. You can't say, that's your kid when he's cutting up. (laughs) Part yours too. It's our child. And good or bad, it's our child. And, and, and it's beautiful. The combination of the two of us right there. I can see distinct characteristics of mine. I can see distinct characteristics of K in our children. And uh, the two become one. There is a bond. There is a union. And then Jesus said, They are no more two but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. So Jesus again gave a very uh, strict commandment concerning marriage. Recognizing that this is the divine ideal. In the beginning, this was God's intention. This was God's purpose. This is God's plan. This is God's ideal. Now, it is tragic that man could not live up to God's ideal because of the hardness of his heart. And it is tragic when in a marriage there comes a hardness of the heart towards the partner. Just where I don't want them anymore. I don't want to live with them anymore. And there is a hardness of heart. That's a tragic thing. But rather than going on in a relationship in which you are destroying each other, Moses said, give her a writing of a bill of divorcement because of the hardness of the heart. But that isn't God's intention. That isn't God's best. And you need to recognize that. But because of the hardness of the heart, it is allowed. It is tolerated by God, though not God's best. So when they got in the house, the disciples were concerned about this. And so they asked Jesus about the same matter. In verse 11, he said unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another commits adultery against her. I think that if you would put to marry another, you would catch more of the actual thought of Jesus. If you you put away your wife in order to marry another, you cause her to, you commit adultery against her. In the years of ministry, as we have dealt with countless number of cases where a husband or a wife determines they're going to move out. And the one party will call, devastated, broken, my husband has moved out. He said that he's just tired of the family. He doesn't want to live with us anymore. I always say, well, There's another woman involved. Oh, no, no, I don't think so. I said, well, I know so. Nobody moves out unless they're moving in. I mean, I've found it over and over again. You just don't leave unless there's someone over here that you're leaving for. And so to leave, to marry another, you commit adultery against your wife, and the same token, 
If a woman shall put away her husband to be married to another, she commits adultery. Now, again, the Mosaic law gave the option to write a bill of divorcement because of the hardness of the heart. If a person has been divorced and remarried, are they living then in adultery? And if the Bible says that no adulterer or adulteress is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, does that mean that they cannot enter the kingdom of heaven? Under the Mosaic law, when the divorce was written, it was the end to that relationship. Now, under the Mosaic law, the uncleanness was interpreted in a strict sense as adultery. In the Mosaic law, if a man or a woman committed adultery, the penalty under the law was stoning. So that if your wife committed adultery, you reported to the elders that she had committed adultery, they would bring her before them, they would examine her, and if she was guilty of adultery, she would be stoned to death. Or the same would be true of a husband whose wife was suspicious, and uh, he would be stoned if he indeed was guilty of adultery. Thus, the guilty party being stoned, put to death, you would be free then to marry another by virtue of the fact that you were now a widow or a widower. Today, in this age in which we live, there is still that hardness of heart which makes it impossible for some couples to remain together. They cannot rise or will not rise to God's divine ideal, and it is a mutual thing. You have to do it together. If you're an innocent party, your wife says, I'm through, I don't want anything more to do with you, and she's interested in someone else. You're an innocent victim, and the same is true the other way around. If your wife and your husband is taken off, not interested anymore, developed another relationship, uh, you then are free from the bond that once existed because that no longer exists because of the new relationship. We have in the Old Testament the story of David, a man who the Old Testament testifies was a man after God's own heart. God set Saul aside from reigning over Israel. God was seeking a man after his own heart, and David was that man. But David was not perfectly morally correct. And everybody knows about his sin with Bathsheba. It was done in secret. 
David sought to cover it. He thought he had successfully covered it when he plotted the murder of Urias, the husband of Bathsheba. But there were suspicions. But there was also the revelation of God to the prophet Nathan, who finally came and faced David with his sin. And David, when faced with his sin by the prophet, said, I have sinned. And the prophet immediately said to him, your sin is forgiven. Now, he did not divorce Bathsheba. The child that was born from the adulterous relationship died. And yet the next son, born of the relationship between David and Bathsheba, was King Solomon, who took the throne after David. So we see here God's mercy and God's grace unto David. And we must always leave that room for the mercy and the grace of God to operate. In the Gospel of John, chapter 8, we have the case of the woman brought to Jesus, taken in the very act of adultery. And again, the Mosaic law says, we're to stone her. What do you say? And Jesus said, whoever is without sin, let him throw the first stone. And again, the grace. When they all left from the eldest to the youngest, and finally only the woman was standing there, Jesus stood up and he looked at her and he said, where are your accusers? And she said, well, I guess I don't have any. And he said, neither do I condemn thee. Go your way and sin no more. The grace of God always leave room for that grace of God to operate. Now, God doesn't just give us a license to move from one relationship to another. God expects us to create a bond, the two become one. And God's ideal is that you let the Spirit of God work in your heart and work out your differences. And seek the help of the Lord. Let your heart be soft towards the working of the Spirit and soft toward that one that you have committed and taken vows too. The Bible tells us that God hates divorcing. It is a difficult experience. It's a hard experience. It's a hurtful experience. No one can come out of that unscathed. There's scars, emotional scars. When the hearts become hard and the relationship turns sour and, and there's that endeavor to cut and hurt each other. Sad condition, not God's desire. But because of the hardness of the heart, the Mosaic law did give the allowance for divorce. Now they brought young children to Jesus that he should touch them. It's, it's beautiful how proud 
parents are of their children and how they love it when people notice their children in an approving way. There's just something about it. You, you know that they're the most beautiful and the brightest little kids in the whole world. And you love it when others notice that too. <laughs> and parents wanted Jesus to notice their children. Now, there is sort of a custom even to the present day of coming to a rabbi that he might touch you. Uh, the idea is through the touching, just sort of putting a blessing on you. There was a little Yemenite rabbi in Jerusalem. I haven't seen him now for five years. But he was a colorful little character with his gray beard and all. And uh, he would be usually in the area of the Temple Mount, not up next to the wall, but out where the um, tourists stay as a general rule. And this little fellow would be shouting out his prayers, walking back and forth out there in that area. Colorful little Yemenite Jew. And it was interesting how that so many of the people and young people would come up to him and he would touch them, imparting a blessing to them. And they would come up to be touched. It's a custom, long-standing custom, to come to a rabbi, a prominent rabbi, and to be touched because he, in the touch sort of imparts unto you a blessing. And so the parents were bringing their children to Jesus, the rabbi, the master, in order that he might just touch them. But the disciples felt that it was an annoyance. And so they began to forbid the parents, rebuking those parents. Don't bother the Lord. Can't you see, you know, with your children? You know? And they began to rebuke the parents. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased. Uh, the Greek is, he was filled with indignation. That his disciples would endeavor to keep someone from coming to him. Jesus always wanted to be open and be available. He wanted the people to know that he was always available. Even in little insignificant things such as touching children. It wasn't bothering him. He loved it. And so when he saw the disciples rebuking the parents, he was filled with indignation. And he said unto them, Allow those little children to come unto me. Don't forbid them. Of such is the kingdom of God. And verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. Receiving it with just the simplicity and the trust and the openness of a little child. Oh, how sad that we become so complex. How sad that we begin to wear masks. We try to cover. You don't find that with a little child. They're just blunt and honest and 
And, and it's beautiful. I love it. My little granddaughter looks at me and she just picks out every flaw. <laughs> She's so honest, <laughs> painfully honest. <laughs> but that's one thing about a child. They, they have nothing to hide and they're not trying to hide. They, they're just, and, and, and just that simplicity and that honesty. And that's, that's how we have to receive the kingdom of God. We come as a little child. And he took them up in his arms. What a beautiful picture. I love it. Jesus just taking the children up. Oh, how I'd love to have been there and brought my kids to him and just watch him hold them in his arms and put his hands on them and bless them. What a picture of our Lord. I love it. This is one of those tender touches of Jesus that just draws me to him. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Mark in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on Jesus and the little children. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Mark 9-10 through 10 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at the wordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of the Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of the Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, we thank you for your Word and We pray that it indeed will be a light into our path, that we'll walk in its light and in your truth. Lord, your word is truth. Teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. Sometimes it's difficult to know what to say or how to help someone who is going through a recent death in the family or a sudden tragedy that's happened. And it's in times like this that we want to be used by God to bring encouragement, hope, and most of all, love to our family and friends who are going through a hardship. That's why I'd like to tell you about a book by Chuck Smith called When the Storm Hits. I'm amazed when I read this book that it's able to encourage and strengthen a person and persuade them to look to Jesus and not at their problem. It encourages us to be patient, not to lose hope, and when the storm hits, to get anchored on Jesus, the rock, and don't let go. 
To order a copy of Chuck Smith's book, When the Storm Hits, please call the word for today at 800-272-9673. Or you can visit us online to read a preview of the book by visiting thewordfortoday.org.